Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing, and my co-host today is Jasmine Stiefel. Jasmine, what's up? How are you doing today? I'm good. Hello. Hey. <laughs> so we have a whole bunch of awesome stuff to talk about today. Um, but uh, let's dive right into the news first off. So uh, I read this article online the other day that uh, was talking about scalpers at Shakespeare in the Park. And as we all know, Shakespeare in Central Park is has been free for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, Jasmine, what do you think about people trying to make a profit off of what, like, subsidized free Shakespeare in the Park? Right, it's... The more I think about it, like, I understand why, just because I've done the wait, and it's... But there's something magic about it, and it makes you, like, want to be there even more, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, it just makes it all the more special, and feels the community of being at Shakespeare in the Park. I don't know if it... The issue is that, um, and the main issue, in my opinion, is that people, like, actually donate money to Shakespeare in the Park hmm. for tickets, or for seats, rather, right? Right. That's what the money is going. Right. Okay. So then, yeah, that's not what it should. That's not what should be happening. Exactly. That's not what should be happening at all. It feels like people, like people who want to see Shakespeare and have the money to to pay for it, donate, buy seats, and and help support the cause to pay the actors to keep Shakespeare in the park going. If you're spending four hundred dollars on a scalp ticket, that should definitely just be going towards more Shakespeare in the park. Yep. And instead of the park making money on it, the park is giving away a bunch of free tickets, and these people are collecting the tickets and then selling them for their own personal profit, which I find to be grossly unethical. Yeah. Um, but there's there's no real way to stop it either. You know what I mean? Like, how would they go about stopping this? Uh, I mean, because you'd hope that, like, the people... I mean, you can't... It's just catching the people outside. It's catching the people outside, and that's just, like, sad to have to even do, and you want it to just be a fun... Yeah, it, it brings an element of, like, police into it, which... Just yeah. So, to try to enforce a no-scalping law would, I, I guess, get messy. And it's not like these people don't have the right to sell these tickets anyway. Like... How, how can you tell somebody, listen, you buy a ticket and you have to either go see it. It's not like an okay, airline. They waited in line. Yep. You do what you want with your ticket, I guess. Sad to sell it, though. Yeah, I guess our, our conclusion... Taking tickets for the people who want to see it? Yep. The poor, everyone here who's poor and wants to see theater. Well, it's... We can't stop it, but it's grossly unethical, I guess, is our conclusion. Um... Cool. So the main uh, topic, I guess, of the the podcast today is Shakespeare's foils. Um, And foil is a device that uh, Shakespeare uses a lot um, in in all of his plays. And it's like, for example, um, Benvolio and Tybalt was one we were talking about before the podcast. And for those who don't know, a foil is a character... Um, that Shakespeare writes into a play, or any author writes into a play, who has opposing personality traits of another character, and therefore, I guess, makes that character's personality traits shine out even more. Mm -hmm. So, like, Benvolio being fun and yet, like, sort of responsible and... like, they're not in their group. 
he's like the one who takes care of everyone. He's sweet and gentle-natured. Yeah, and whereas Tybalt, the opposite would be fiery, groin-centric, passionate, ready to fight at every turn. Yes, continue. Sorry. And then the the fascinating thing about that is, if, if Benvolio wasn't in Romeo and Juliet, do you think Tybalt would stand out as being as rash as he is? No, I, I mean, I think it's just the perfect thing to make. He, he angers him in the way that gets it all started. He's the one who who honestly starts the whole play and makes this whole catastrophe happen. Yeah, because who is, who is it that, that Tybalt's fighting in the beginning of the play? Is it Benvolio? Like, don't they literally... Like, is that the re- is that why that whole brawl begins? No, the the whole brawl begins because of Gregory and and Samson oh, right. like biting their the thumb and all tiny, that stuff. Yes, those little men. But in in many productions I've seen, like Tybalt does come out and draw his sword, and I think it's it might be Benvolio who who takes arms up against him, and then they're often in productions I see their center stage fighting when the prince yells rebellious subjects and stops the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, he's... But also, the way everyone talks about him, everyone, I mean, everyone knows he's the fighter and the family, the way they treat him, but you need Benvolio. Yep. You need Benvolio. And that's, and that's the cool thing about it. I mean, they're two opposing personalities, and because they're both in the same play they become that much more obvious, mm-hmm. or at least standout-ish to the audience. Um, another really cool, and, and perhaps one of the more famous foils in the canon, Laertes and, and Hamlet. So I guess, um, Jasmine, why don't you describe Laertes to us as you see him? I would rather explain Hamlet. <laughs> All right, well, why don't you explain Hamlet to us as you've seen him? I, I mean, I just, I think his... Uh... His way of thinking it all out before acting is just so. I mean, it's it's his, it's his, it's his biggest problem. It's his like it's his tragic flaw to have to never act before just rattling and his his soliloquies are just so the the isolation his isolation. You know, it's interesting you say that because. Uh, the, my my guest last week, Sarah Becker, um, and I were talking about Hamlet and how he does talk more than any character in all of Shakespeare. Yes. Like his fourteen hundred something lines, I think she said, were more than the entire play of Macbeth. That's so crazy! Oh my god, I have yeah. no idea. And and he even says in his his speech, "Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I." He, he comes out and says uh, something along the lines of, what, this is most brave. I must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words. And that's not verbatim. I skipped a couple of lines. He's school for philosophy, and that's all he does. And then finally he's forced into action because of his ghost, his father's ghost, and he just doesn't know what to do. And it, Yeah, and it's interesting how he does spend all that time working everything out and rationalizing and, like, all these soliloquies, like, to be or not to be, and, um, and oh, what a rogue. And, uh, oh, that this too, too solid flesh, and how all occasions do inform against me. All of these famous soliloquies are him working out in his head for lines upon lines upon lines. What is the best thing to do? What's the most, like, what is justice? What is the, 
what, what's the right thing to do here? What's the political thing to do here? What should man do here? What normal people would do here? Right. And I guess eventually he comes to a decision. Or sometimes doesn't even come to a decision. No, and I think that's when everything falls apart. Yeah, it's... So, by contrast, mm-hmm. we're saying the fact that Laertes is in this play helps... Do, do we think that it helps bring out these qualities in Hamlet even more? I know, it's, it's kind of tough to think about. Like, here's, here's my view of Laertes. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, super protective of Ophelia, right? Um, going he's forward. He's a meddler. He's he, like, totally in a way that Hamlet isn't. I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah, no, no you're right. It's... He, he he takes more action with less words. I mean, Laertes has one... Like, uh, so many f- f- stage combat actors who, who want to audition for Laertes have trouble finding Laertes material to audition with for <laughs> Hamlet or for other plays. Because Laertes has one long speech in the play, and it's it's to Ophelia, and it's not... About Hamlet. It's, right. And it's yeah. not really Laertes-esque, either, the way he talks. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, he he's a lot more fight. He's a lot more uh, fire as as opposed to Hamlet's ice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, to to that end, I guess what we should ask is if there were a play called Laertes and Hamlet were in it, would we see these traits of Laertes stick out even more? I think so. I'd always like to get to know Laertes more, just because. Hamlet is just so overwhelmingly depressing. I find, <laughs> you know, well, this man, I, it's just so, it's the it's the craziest situation. Yeah, and I mean, I have my own views about Hamlet, but I will concede that there are some times when I feel like Hamlet spends a lot of time either feeling sorry for himself or mm-hmm. feeling um, just this this antipathy towards the way the world works, whereas. Laertes feels that things have been done wrong to him, but immediately wants to to take action to solve it. I think that's also interesting with, like, their status and, like, the status that they both have. And that, like, of course, like, Hamlet is kind of in the ideal situation status-wise and just, like, hates it. And that's, I don't know. The next next one I wanted to move on to is uh, Kate and Bianca. And I know... Taming of the Shoe isn't one of your favorite plays, but um, just just the idea of of Kate being the fiery shrew that she is, and I guess I'm using the word fiery a lot today, but it seems like a good, all-encompassing way to describe this character. It's like we just read a scene from Taming of the Shrew for fun before the podcast because we're both Shakespeare nerds, mm-hmm. and it was a good time. Um, so I guess describe Kate in the way that you see her, and especially in that scene. She, I think she is, she seems fiery is totally right, and also just in need of somebody who can match her, and somebody who, who can challenge her in a way that, that other men haven't. You know... She seems like, un, like well, untamable, but <laughs> of course we see... Well, it's interesting because, the, I mean, the the action she takes in the play described that perfectly. You know, she calls Petruchio and asks, she, like, she does something in the streets in the beginning of the play that's also along those lines. And she breaks a guitar over somebody's head. Like, 
<laughs> Granted, that happens off stage, but... Uh, and then there's Bianca, who is just ready for somebody to come and woo her and and take her into to married life. Um, like Hero. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, sure. So they, they really parallel, I think. Well, and along as long as we're talking about Hero, our next, our next foil pair, I guess, um, is Hero and, and Beatrice. So since Much Ado, I know it's one of your favorite plays. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I think, uh, I feel like the definition during the explanation you just gave about Kate and Bianca really matches where Hero's at, and just, she's young and, and like, wants to be in love, and Beatrice is, like, she's, there's just an age, there's, she seems, uh, wiser, she's just been, I feel like she's seen love fail, it feels like, and, um... I think she's ready for a match, somebody who can match her, and, you know. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, because, I mean, Beatrice, having seen Love fail a bunch of times, um, and Hero being so, I guess, enthusiastic and hopeful and naive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess naive kind of has a negative connotation to it a little bit, but it, it, I mean... No, I I get what you mean, and the fact, so do you think the fact that Hero is in this play makes Beatrice's uh, jadedness stand out. Totally, or... yeah, 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 yeah. I really feel that about this one, especially. She just like it. She seems so much more like harsh when Hero is like this warm, loving thing almost, and she's just like, no, no, no. Um, and as long as we are in the midst of much mm-hmm. ado about nothing, um, Benedict and Claudio. Uh, just, I mean, Claudio. Even like they're, even, they're both soldiers. Am I right? Like, yeah, they are. They came back together, and that's why like Hero and Beatrice were so like men were coming back. But at the same time, they're completely different people. Like ben- Benedict is almost uh, comparable to Petruchio, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Taming the Shrew, where mm-hmm. he's just he's he's more about winning an argument than he is about wooing a woman. Right. Well, he seems he's, he's not the clown, but he feels like it. <laughs> sure. Um, and then, you know, we have soft, gentle Claudia who... I mean, Benedict seems like a guy who, sort of like Hamlet, rationalizes things a lot before he goes into the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, like his uh, one uh, speech where he's, like, on the docks or whatever, and he's talking about... Uh, Claudio and like yeah. how he's uh, become you know not like a soldier anymore and etc etc um, but he, Claudio is also as we see um, in the wedding scene is that what act four um, I don't know. where he just lets his emotions get the better of him and and has that railing monologue against against sure. hero in that scene and just makes her feel awful um I'm actually looking it up right now um, to, to just give us a little bit of an example. Oh, hero, what a hero hadst thou been. If half thy outward graces had been placed about thy thoughts and counsels of thy heart, but fare thee well, most foul, most fair. Farewell, thou pure impiety and impious purity. Mm-hmm. Oh, which is, that's, I mean, that's, it's harsh and... Uh, there's, there's a word for that. It's a little in love hero. It's terrible. Well, and you were talking about how earlier how 
what Don Pedro is it or Don John comes up and and adds adds injury to insult or whatever? Right, yeah, I mean he's like the, the, this is not who I raised. It's like oh my god, and innocent innocent little hero. And so, uh, chiasmus was the word I was looking for. Pure impiety and impious purity. It's when, when chiasmus is when Shakespeare takes two words and uses them back to back and flips them around. And um, so, I, I guess the overall question we're looking at here is: a foil is a dramatic device. Is it? Is it so effective that we notice outright, or is it just something that we subconsciously? like, conform to and, and just gives us a subconscious idea about the characters. From just us trying to figure out the foils, I think it, it, it must be subconscious, because, like, it, it, I mean, it's, it's fun figuring out the, how, how, especially I feel like with Hero and Beatrice, just what, how jaded it makes Beatrice look compared to, I, I guess I keep on saying little Hero, because, like, she seems like this, young, untouched thing, so much so compared to Beatrice. And I didn't really... Well, and we had been looking up foils before the show so that we could do this section, mm -hmm. and it, there, were, there were so many, like, plays I was looking at when searching for foils, and, like, literary websites had, this is a foil, this character's a foil for this. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, right. duh. But I didn't consciously think about it mm -hmm. while I was watching the play. So, um, I guess if we were using the word to Miyagi as a verb, that's what Shakespeare has sort of done to us with yes. his foils. It's just, it's a super interesting thing to look at because eh, another one I like a lot is Hal and Hotspur in Henry IV, Part One. Um, whereas if, if Hotspur was any different character, the flaws, the character flaws of Prince Hal, his laziness, his lack of ambition would would not stand out as much as they do if there wasn't a character like Hotspur taking action all the time and being ambitious. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I feel Shakespeare has done very, very much on purpose and has a direct effect on how the audience views characters in a play. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, any final thoughts? I'm just, now I'm racking my brain for other possible foils I haven't thought of. <laughs> we did go through As You Like It, um, which is, like, Great, yeah. The, yeah, the play of foils. Even, like, as far as location, like, the Forest of Arden and the Duke's Court are... Yeah, no, they make it so... It's how I feel about Winter's Tale, too, and the having those, the locations be so different, and when they go out into the farmland, it's just like who is this young girl, like this little princess girl, and compared to Paulina, who's just this monster woman, I think. I mean, I love her, but she's she's scary to deal with. And how how much does a character, like, it's interesting to think about it in terms of the Winter's Tale, because how does the location I mean, contrasting the other location change how the character in one place contrasts the character in another place, you know? Mm. I mean, the, the fun of the people in the joy and the happiness of the people in the farm compared to this jealous king who's 
totally in his head and like alienating everyone compared to this like family family thing happening on the farm it, it, there's a very similar element to it in As You Like It, too, where, mm-hmm. um, like, the, we see, who is it? Oliver, who starts out as just, like, practically villainous in, um, in cohorts with, uh, uh, in cahoot, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, he's on Duke Frederick's side. Right. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and once he gets out into, into the forest of Arden, it's like, all oh, that melts away. Yeah. I mean, it takes a line to do it, but... It's As the bear, well, no, the bear kills in Winter Star. <laughs> Never mind. So, I guess what we've learned is lions and bears and foils. Um, oh, yeah. And so, I, the next uh, the next topic on the list uh, for talking points for the podcast today is um, what I'm going to start calling the literary element of the day. And today, that element is not chiasmus, but anaphora, um, which is... It, sometimes when I'm looking up these poetic terms, or when I'm learning about these poetic terms, it's like, I, I've i seen these things before, it's just I didn't know there was a word for that. Um, and the, the one we're looking at today, anaphora, is basically when Shakespeare uses a word or word phrase over and over again at the beginning or end of successive lines um, for emphasis and for poetic effect. Um, and the, the first one that I wanted to look at is Aeneas from uh, Coriolanus. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Coriolanus, well, you're most people, mm-hmm. because Coriolanus is a fairly obscure, obscure play. But what, uh, what I have here is a monologue uh, from Aeneas that starts out, If there be one among the fairest of Greece that holds his honor higher than his ease, that seeks his praise more than he fears his peril, that knows his valor and knows not his fear, that loves his mistress more than in confession, with truant vows to her own lips he loves, and dare avow her beauty and her worth in other arms than hers, to him this challenge. And... I mean, obviously, that starts four lines in a row. Um, and I don't know, what what do you get from the poetic effect of that, Jasmine? Sorry, everyone. Um, I just, it's, it builds. I think it, it's definitely, sure. it's building, it's building this point. It, I'm not familiar with Coriolanus. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fun to look at the yeah. stuff like this, too, in plays that we're not as familiar with, either, because mm-hmm. I... I don't know anything about Coriolanus except that he becomes a traitor, which is interesting, and I hope I didn't spoil the ending for anybody, but... Uh, there it is. Uh, so, the, the fact that he starts out these four different lines with the word that, it, I mean, people don't talk like that, you know, in, in normal everyday life, and I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, is that as an actor, you have to pay attention to something like that in order to make that text work, and realize that you are talking in a heightened poetic way and that there's a specific reason for it. You really, really are trying hard to make a point or you're really trying hard to make something build. Right. Well, it's also, it seems like it's, it's like fervor and the way that it's just, it's growing and it seems like this is, it's, it's like, it feels like it's shaking in his brain and especially anything Shakespeare, none of it, like, I can't imagine that this was on accident. No, I mean, obviously of not. Of course not. So it's just... 
dispense. I think I 100% agree with what you're saying by paying special attention to these things. Um, yeah, and obviously he did do it on purpose, so what was he trying to tell the actors of his time, and what was he... Yeah, I, I just, just remembered um, another set of anaphora from one of my favorite plays of all time, uh, Love's Labor's Lost. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Love's Labor's Lost, that's, um, that's a, it's got this very famous uh, monologue that starts out, Have at you then affections, men at arms, consider what you first did swear unto. Um, and in the midst of it, he said, Baroon says, uh, it adds a precious seeing to the eye. A lover's eyes will gaze an eagle blind. A lover's ear will hear the lowest sound when the suspicious head of theft is stopped. Love's feeling is more soft and sensible than are the tender horns of cockled snails. Love's tongue proves dainty Bacchus gross in taste. And by reading that poetic language that starts with the same word over and over again, you, you have antithesis with eyes and ear and feeling. Mm. Um, and it's just, you can't help, but just by making the antithesis clear, just by making the word after love clear each time, the the emotion in you has to, to, to build larger because each one becomes more and more important than the next. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's pointing out what, it's giving a, like a, an arrow to what's important right now. There's there's another one that I really like also at the end of this monologue. Um, why don't you read this for us, Jasmine? Um, starting at for wisdom's sake. For wisdom's sake, a word that all men love, or for love's sake, a word that loves all men, or for men's sake, the author of these women, or women's sake, by whom we men are men. It's 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 so fascinating. Then he goes. That's like basically the end of the monologue. He goes off. That's his. Find his penultimate point in the monologue. Let us once lose our oaths to find ourselves, or else we lose ourselves to keep our oaths, which is another chiasmus I just noticed, another one of those words we learned today. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, in this part, it's almost like it, it's different than the first anaphora, I find. Right, absolutely. Um, because in the first one, it seems like he's adding one point onto the next. A lover's eyes will gaze, it's an eagle blind. A lover's ear will hear the lowest sound. And these are the things about love that you can add on and on and on to make my point about how um, pristine a lover's senses are. But here, it's different in that he's like changing his mind. Almost. Well, it feels it feels like his closing argument, where it's like, this is what you thought is going on, and now, like, let me exactly flip it for you to show you exactly what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and let me decide how to end, like, what what exact words to end on, or what, because this is his, you, you know how when you, when you end a speech to a bunch of people, you want to have a really good tagline, you know? It, in this, it's almost like he's trying to figure out his tagline, you know, for wisdom's sake... A word that all men love, let us once lose our oaths to find ourselves. And that would be the end of the monologue. But instead of that, he goes, for wisdom's sake, a word that all men love. No, 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 that's, that's not the correct tagline. Yeah. Or, or, or for love's sake, a word that loves all men. Or, or for men's sake, the authors of these women. Or And then he finally decides on for women's sake, because that's the most important part. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know, which uh, which of the lines do you like the best? I mean, is it the one at the end, or do you like one in the middle even more? 
for women's sake by whom we men are men. Yeah. And, <laughs> I love that. And there, and there you go. Like, it's... And I also love, or for love's sake, a word that loves all men. It just so, it feels just, like, all-inclusive and, like, how can you run from that? And, and you know, I feel like that's the way the actor should treat it. You know? Mm-hmm. He, like, the, even though he decides to change it after that, he does love this line, probably, when he's They're saying all true. it. true. Like, They're, exactly. Yeah. And it's not that the ones before it aren't true either, but, like, it, it has to be treated as though each of these are the tagline that he just discovered that's the best. But then, right. wait, I just discovered one that's even better, and I got it here. I mean, talk about foils, or for, for women's sake, by whom we men are men. Mm, sure, I mean, yeah. It feels like the foil of men, yeah. the foil of women. And... They, they, we make each other so that. We are, yeah, I'm so much stronger. So see, that's why we linked these two topics together because we knew we were going to talk about this from the beginning, of course. Yes. Um, but yeah, so the the anaphora here is, I mean, as we are deciding, decidedly different from the first one in the monologue, but it's it, definitely to be acknowledged. I think that it, anything, any type of pattern in his work is to be acknowledged, and then to figure out why it needs to be repeated. Yeah, and I guess what we've just discovered is that that there is no rule about it either. Like if you have to acknowledge it, but you can't treat everyone in the same way. You just have to make a choice about it. Mm-hmm. You can't let it be normal like the rest of the other texts. Oh, yeah, it's like if you were to ignore like a rhyming couplet at the end. It's just, you just ruin it. You have to, like, do, it's rhyming for a reason. And even because it rhymes, you can't treat it like the text around it. No. Or, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It would be wasted. Totally. Um, to not find that rhythm. Yep. And so, there we go. Actors, keep an eye out for your anaphora in each in these monologues. There's one more, actually, that I had found earlier, and it's from Julius Caesar, right at the very beginning, in Act 1, Scene 1, Marilus has a line, or Marilus, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his super obscure name. I'm not sure it's ever even addressed in the play. Um, So we have, um, made in her concave shores is the question before, and then we say, and how do you now put on your best attire? And, And do you now put on your best attire? And do you now cull out a holiday? And do you now strew flowers in his way that comes in triumph over Pompey's blood? So, again, we have an even longer phrase in this one, you know, um, and do you now, um, which... Similar to the first one we'd found where it just feels like it's growing. Yep. Yeah. And the, the question you have to ask yourself as an actor, I think, in this situation is why is the first one not enough? Mm. You know, and... Why keep speaking? Yep. And it's the point, clearly the point wasn't made or not understood. And in a, in a very action-objective way, like, not only why do you have to clarify the point and make it more understood, but why do you have to use the same words over again with a different ending to do that? Mm. Like, what was it about those first four words that the character was like, wait, these were the right words, but I didn't end it in the right way? And do you now? It's, it, it's, it's, it seems like a, it's just calling them out, being like, you know... Yeah, and it's it's just, it's so distinct. And the fact that, I mean, there, there are so many characters that make an argument, like, in the midst of a monologue and add on to it and add on to it and add on to it. But we see very few instances where they use the same 
word or word phrase at the beginning of every line. And just like you mentioned rhyming couplets earlier, it's poetic in a way. Uh, and, you know, that's what Shakespeare was so good at. I mean, we, Sarah Becker and I talked about uh, last week about how, yes, yeah, Shakespeare's known for his plots, but more than anything else, he's known for his poetry, mm-hmm. you know? And so if you can take these poetic elements and then motivate them from within and find the way to make it work as a character, you're, you're suddenly a genius, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's his work is like a treasure map, and there's these things that he's there are clues to it. And as long as you're paying attention to the things that aren't, I mean, it's all heightened, but it's heightened because there's the poetic these poetic clues that he's giving us mean something. And how does not only how does each poetic clue? The, I like I like how you use treasure hunt because I use the phrase Easter eggs when I'm talking about mm. it, and it's. Um, how do you, what does each of these clues mean against each of these other clues? Like, how is chiasmus different from anaphora, is different from rhyming couplets, and what do those things each tell us distinctly and separately? But, also, as we talked about earlier, how is each individual anaphora different from the other anaphora in the canon? Right. So, it's it's a really cool little Easter egg slash treasure Mm -hmm. chest for you guys to look out for. Um, you know, if you come across your anaphora, an anaphora in any of your Shakespeare text or an audition monologue, you have been given a gift. Please, for the love of all things bard, do not waste that gift. Um, so, finally, we're going to move on to uh, a couple of listener questions. Um, and some of these are, are really interesting. I'm excited to answer these questions today. Um, Cameron from Chicago asks... What if Macbeth had been Iago? And I guess the way I interpret this question is, what if we took Iago out of the world of Othello and planted him into Macbeth's shoes at the beginning of Act 1, scene? well, not the beginning of Act 1, Scene 1, because that's not, I mean, you know, he's not there yet. But from the first line, Macbeth speaks in the, play so foul and fair a day I have not seen what if that were Iago's character instead I just love thinking about that marriage that <laughs> weird manipulative marriage and I, my favorite part about the Macbeths are their their loyalty and teamwork and like to have them both be m- manipulative in that way but having the same loyalty interests me a lot. Well, and see, the, the, one of the tragic flaws of Macbeth is that he was so easily manipulated by, by his, his wife. wife. I mean, yeah. the inkling was there, but she was the one that really pushed him. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I think he's power hungry, but I think that it, it was she lit a fire under it. And, and what's interesting about Iago is that he's already power hungry. You know, like, perhaps even more so than than Macbeth. We can't say for sure. But, and it seems Iago is, I don't know if I want to say more malicious, because I hate um, just giving something a word like badness to describe somebody. It's kind of cunning. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's more like a positive. Cunning and and ambition combined making for action. Terrifying. Yes. So perhaps, like, maybe he wouldn't have even needed his wife's 
like assistant and they would have both been in agreement and instead of just charging in to murder Duncan in his sleep like with barely any plan like it happens right. like what what was it Lady Macbeth is like I'm gonna get the, the guards drunk and then you're just gonna go in and kill them. them and like you're gonna do it like we're not gonna hire someone like you'll just like go in and do that yeah <laughs> and it was such a it seems like such a quick sloppy plan that they they got away with but not really because Malcolm and, and Donald Bain had their suspicions right but how would how might Iago and Lady Macbeth have have gone about that? You know, I just think there would there would have been so much better planning, and like I don't think that they would have even had to have been there. You know, there's a good chance Iago and Lady M could have just manipulated Duncan into killing himself. Awesome, <laughs> awesome, right? Awesome. Um, so I guess from that point in the play, that would have been completely different. Um, still. I think we both agree, still would have murdered Duncan. Right? Yes, I mean, I wonder... Yeah, I just think they would have risen faster. So, next, like, couple of phases of the play, like, you know, how would they have dealt with Banquo's suspicion, and, and how would Macbeth, or Iago, have dealt with Banquo's murder in, like, a more sly and manipulative way? Could he have convinced Banquo that there's nothing going on? Anything is possible. Right. Yeah. Well, especially with a character yeah. like Iago, who... I mean, as we see, like, Othello is, is a very strong character with one weakness. You know, his... his Jealous. Well, his... Yeah, exactly. His insecurity right. about... Um, to, about him and, and Desdemona. Because, um, I don't know... Brabantio is, is who I'm thinking of as Desdemona's father, right? Am I, am I wrong? Um, so... <laughs> in case I'm wrong, sorry, listeners, but I'm, I think I'm going with Brabantio, and who, how he was never Othello's biggest fan in the first place. So Othello's already insecure about that marriage, and that's his one, like, his biggest weakness, that Iago just finds a way to prey upon. Mm. So if we look at, at Banquo, what is Banquo's biggest weakness as a character? Is it is it his son? Is it, you know, is it Fleance? And would Iago have been able to manipulate Fleance somehow? Um, right. The, the, the weakness of having a, a son to take care of in this... In this war-torn landscape, yeah. yeah. Totally. So, I don't know, who knows how Iago might have preyed upon that, and would he... I feel like there would have been more death. Right. More, <laughs> like, more death, I think, that a lot of the suspicions could have been taken care of with death. And there's a lot of death in that play already, so we're really saying something. Um, I guess my my last question about it is because we could we could delve through the whole play and, and pick everything apart, but we want to get to some other questions as well. What what about the end? I mean, Iago, we can probably assume is not as good of a fighter as as Macbeth because I mean Macbeth had you know has just come from battle War. in the beginning of the play, yeah, yeah. war torn and like you and know graded it. Unseemed, <laughs> unseemed the thane of Cawdor from the nave to the chaps. Ooh. Like you, you gotta really be ahead of someone, or just have them really not be paying attention to be able to get them from the nave to the chops. It's so visceral! It's so visceral! <laughs> oh my god! So I mean, so that's one hell of a war move. Whatever. So I mean, we assume that Macbeth is a really good fighter, mm-hmm. and maybe Iago isn't so much. So would Iago have even charged out into the into the fields of? Um, Duntonane or wherever in the first place? Like, would he have been that confident uh, when he had an opposing army coming at him? 
I feel like it just would have been handled through wit and cunning rather right. than like I just don't think that he would have needed that. Well, and that's the problem. See, at the end of Othello, we see them figure out what happened, and like in most productions, somebody punches the the crap out of Iago, you know, or, or does something, and they arrest him. You know, so he's immediately overtaken by physical force, and he doesn't seem to put up much of a fight. So, and he, so, and he basically kind of surrenders to it, and he agrees, like, yeah, I'm going to go to jail, but from here on, I'm going to be silent. I'm just going to not talk. Would he have done the same thing at the end of Macbeth? Like, with an army coming at him, would he have just waited in his castle and been like, arrest me? Because Macbeth, we know, would rather die than be arrested. That's why he fights to the bitter end. Because, he's, uh, the, what's that line Macduff has towards him at the end of the play? It's, um, uh, then yield thee, coward, um, and live to be the show and gaze of the time. We'll have thee as our rarer monsters are, painted upon a pole, and under writ, here may you see the tyrant. I.e., mm. we are going to put you in a cage and make everybody point and laugh at you for the rest of your life because you were a tyrant and that's one of the worst things you can be. Mm. Othello, or Iago in, in Macbeth, rather, like, would he have just been, like, fine? Whereas Macbeth was like, nope, I would rather die than, than have that happen to me. I, I am not sure. <laughs> it does, I, I have so many I, pictures, and I can't. Throw out your first thought. Your first instinct. Yes or no? I think um, there would have been other ways of getting around being ridiculed in that. Like, I, I can't imagine he would allow that to get, allow it to get that far. Huh. So you're saying, like, maybe he's taken captive, but he, like, finds a way to make... There's, like, an end game. Like, a further end game. I can't, like, nobody... Sure. I, don't, I don't think anybody resents, like, just, I don't think anybody's like, okay, well, now is my time to die, unless you're actually an old person, but, like, I just think that there's always, like, yeah, I think your brain is always in survival mode of, like, how do I fix, how mm -hmm. do I, like, fix these things? Sure. And, like, if you're not a physical person, a physical, like, Iago doesn't want to fight, then I think that there's always the next, next step, next plan. So maybe he lives painted upon a pole for a little while and just stays silent and deals with it and then figures out a way to manipulate himself out of it and to be continued. Yes. Yes. Interesting. That is, of course, our hypothetical. We yes. would have to ask Shakespeare to know the real answer, and he's been dead for about 400 years or so now. So, what uh, I know, right? <laughs> Imagine what the world would be like with Shakespeare still in it. But that's the something we could talk about <laughs> another day. Um... We have another question from Meredith on Twitter. Um, how much of what Shakespeare wrote was recycled and how much was original? Um, and I know you have more uh, experience and knowledge in this area than I do, so why don't you start? Right. I mean, most, almost all of his plays, he did not come up with a plot for. And I don't know if it's more than two, but I know that for certain he came up with a plot for Midsummer and... Um, the Tempest, but all of his most, not all, clearly, but almost all of his plays were based on history. Right. And that's another interesting element to this question, because to answer that, we pretty much have to throw out the history plays, um, 
Meredith, because, I mean, obviously, they, they are all, they're not necessarily recycled, because they weren't plays beforehand, but they are a documentation of real events. So does that, that means they're not recycled, right? That means they're just... Well, you got characters and events that actually happened, and then sure. actually, I, he humanized them to a way that we could all... I mean, you don't have to be a king to play a king, Shakespeare's king, because they're dealing with the same human problems just at an epic proportion. Yeah, so I mean, but then you're saying he did recycle them. You're right, and I, I think I agree now, because it's, it is history, and it's already an existing story, um, and um, so therefore it's, it's recycled. And... Yeah, judging by the fact that they've already, they have already existed somewhere in time, I guess he is recycling history. Ideas. Yes. So they're not his original ideas, I guess, which is what we're sort of qualifying this question to mean. Yes. Like we came up with, we found some of the source material for Romeo and Juliet. And um, what was it called? The Tragical Yeah, I believe history. it was The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet. I love it. He didn't even change the names. He just doesn't care. <laughs> yep. Um, written by Arthur Brooke in nineteen or in fifteen sixty two, which I think we decided like Shakespeare would have pretty much grown up with this text being fairly new and mm -hmm. perhaps the in being fairly new being pretty popular and well known. Right, well it's a isn't it a poem? Is this the one that was a poem? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a poem. So it's a long one though. Yeah, yeah. like an epic poem? Yes. Right on. Um, then uh, we have Othello is based off of um, uh, a novel or a play by uh, Giraldi Cintio, an, an Italian author, uh, back in 1565, um, Hecatomathy, which took me you know, a minute to figure out how to pronounce, um, but basically uses similar plot elements mm -hmm. um, and even similar character names in, in certain places. Um, and then, finally, the last example that we have to share with you is Two Gentlemen of Verona. So, Jasmine, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, he, he used the exact same names again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, it, was it a book? It was either a, a book or a story. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Uh, but it's called uh, Diana Enamorada by, uh, by an author named Jorge de Montemayor. Um... And it's, it basically uses the plot elements of... Uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona basically uses the plot elements of that, along with, like, Proteus, one of Proteus's speeches is, like, very similar, like, line by line to um, a passage in Titus and Gisippus from uh, Boccaccio's Decameron, which is uh, another short story in a collection of... Uh, in a collection of tales or collection of plays. In Shakespeare's play, how does Julia find is, find out that Proteus is in love with Sylvia? Like, I don't remember. So Julia finds out by... She dresses up as a boy right. and goes into the wilderness. I'll oh, with the, to, with the uh, letters. Yeah, well, she has... Uh, yes, something... And is she the one that, gets, that runs the into the outlaws? Yes, and she's the messenger... No, that's Sylvia. Okay. When Sylvia is running away, but she has the messenger. She's the messenger with the ring, isn't she? Yeah, I do remember a ring. I also remember her going out into the woods, dressed as a man, specifically to find 
Proteus. Right, and he's with Sylvia in that very difficult... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that's right, and she doesn't reveal her identity until the very the end very with end. all the rape and all the bad stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, because in this, in his source material, he she finds out because she's... Um, she he- she overhears him talking about Sylvia in an inn. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's interesting. So... Again, so he embellished. Yes, and he, made it a lovely play. Well, and that's what part. That's what the genius of Shakespeare is. Like, with with all the thousands of plots and and cliches now nowadays, or since the beginning of time, you can't always come up with an entirely original story, even if you don't realize it. I'm sure anything everybody writes is influenced by what they've read. Absolutely. You know, and so to an extent, everybody's a ripoff, but. We know that Shakespeare pretty directly ripped off plots from some of these plays to put them on stage. Yep. And everyone except Midsummer and Tempest. Yep. And, and, and they're pretty magical. Yep. I know. I said he had to add a ton of magic to make it really work. <laughs> and really complicated plots and a lot of characters and episodism and mm-hmm. yep. And and who knows? Maybe. Maybe if we look deeper into it, we'd find that the episodic n- nature of Midsummer, like being broken down into the mechanicals plot and the the bottom plot and the the, lover the lovers plot, the like are all different things stolen from different places that he combined oh, into them. Yeah, I wonder. Um, but yeah, uh, Meredith, your answer is pre- pretty much nothing. He wrote was original. It was mm. all ripped off from somewhere else or from histories. But he did it in a way. That nobody else has ever done it before, which in a sense makes it original. Absolutely. I mean, the plots know, but it's nobody else had written it in this way. Yep. <laughs> so, um, the next question we have is uh, from Richard Hayes at RM Hayes on Twitter, um, who asks, what is your favorite bad quarto? And then... Mm-hmm. Um, tells us that his is Hamlet, and honestly, Richard, I wish I had a more creative answer for you than this, but, like, <laughs> They're funny. It is it's funny. <laughs> yeah, the Hamlet bad quarto is is pretty much bad. like hands down the the worst. Um, Jasmine, why don't you give us a little bit of the to be or not to be soliloquy as found in the first quarto edition of Hamlet? To be or not to be. Uh, there's the point. To die, to sleep. Is that all? I all. No, to sleep, to dream. I Mary. There it goes. For in that dream of death, when we wake, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, to undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accurate damn The accursed, cursed, yeah. The accursed damn. We have, like, and there's there's so much more that's, that's good about it, but, like, just think about uh, not only, like, how bad the meter is in that, but, like... How different the world would be if we'd had that instead of the the rich metaphor and and symbolism and imagery from the to be or not to be soliloquy in such a, an organized and thought out way, like yeah, Richard, I, I I hate to just agree with you and that be the answer to your question, but um, but it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it's funny bad. Um. And then the last question we have is from John Dransky at John Dransky on Twitter. Um, Why was Theseus getting married on the next new moon, but the Mechanicals Almanac said the moon would shine that night? Which, 
In case anybody doesn't know what a new moon is, a new moon by definition means that the moon isn't shining because, I mean, you have the full moon, uh, which is, you know, completely bright all around. You have the gibbous, which is a crescent taken off. You have a half moon, which is half the moon is shining. You have a crescent moon, which means just that sliver of the moon is shining. And then you have a new moon, which means the entire face of the moon is in shadows. So... Theseus himself says he's getting married on the next new moon in Act 1, Scene 1 of the play. Um, but the Mechanicals Almanac, as they state in Act 3, Scene 1 of the play, says that the moon would shine brightly that night. What do you think of that? I think Shakespeare did not worry himself about time. Mm. I think that time and time again, when, I like, when I've worked on the plays, it Romeo and Juliet's marriage, and when he has to go to Mantua, it's all, all the timing of this is all messed up. It doesn't make any sense. And when you try and map it out, it just, I just don't think he really worried about the timing and figuring that out. It sounds simple, a simple answer, but I... Hey, yeah, and I guess what, another way to say that is, like, things don't always line up. From from the timing of the three days of Romeo and Juliet, the supposed three days, and the mm -hmm. questions about why is the sun up here, and why is this time used here, and none of it matches up. Right. We, we, I mean, we could say it's just a plot hole, right? That, oh, well, Theseus said the, the moon would shine brightly, and he was just talking about... Or Theseus said he would be married on the next new moon, and he was just talking about a date in a calendar that they used back then. Like, mm -hmm. oh, this is... Because they, you know, they probably didn't have January through December, no, did they? Or, I, I actually don't know. Maybe, they, no, they probably did. But their their calendars may have been run by the, by the moon and the sun, because they didn't necessarily... I don't know. When, when was the watch invented? When was time invented? There's more stuff I should have looked up before the beginning of the show. But, um, you know, maybe in this time in which Midsummer not only is written, but the time Midsummer was set in this magical forest of a place where they're not really talking about clocks and, and watches in specific times, their time would have run on sunrises and sunsets, and therefore on moons. So, and there... There is also a possibility that new moon, like new moon to us, means what I said earlier. You know, the shadow, like right. the moon's completely in shadows. But it could mean something different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It could have just meant the next new moon to them, meaning the when the moon becomes full again, right? Which would make sense with this, right? If the moon is shining bright, sure. So and maybe there's there's a difference between a new moon. And, and, like, a, an old moon. Maybe once the, the crescent comes in and turns into the gibbous and all of a sudden the moon is complete again, it is new. Moon. Yes. That's what I initially thought a new moon was. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there you go. It could, it's... I mean, just because we use language in a certain way now does not necessarily mean that Shakespeare used it in the same way 450 years ago. Well, he was inventing it at the time, too. So also it's true. just Fun whatever fact. he wanted. Shakespeare invented, like, over 2,000 words or mm -hmm. something, including the word bubble and the word bedroom. Um, and kissing. No way! Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, way to go, Shakespeare. You have, you, you know, you, you've shaped our society in so many ways, <laughs> right down to the word kissing. Um, so, 
yeah, there's there's another example. Like it could be a plot hole. It could mean that that means something different, or it could be a statement about the mechanicals and their um, incompetence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Like that's also another theory I have. Like, what if like Theseus has this set calendar and you know he he runs the show, but then the mechanicals like you know were like trying to, to, to copy a calendar or trying to, like, make dates for something, and they're like... Reusing an almanac. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, um, well, Thesis is, is getting married on this day, and according to, to our research, which is incompetent, it's it's the it's when the moon is shining brightly. Um, and... Who knows? Yes. Huh? So, our three potential solutions are simple plot hole, new moon means something different back then, or... It's a statement about the mechanical's incompetence. Mm -hmm. um, that is all the time we have for today. Um, any any closing thoughts, Jasmine? Anything that you wanted to, to get in here before we close? No, it was a lot of fun getting to rehash some old, old, older plays I haven't thought about in a while, and mm -hmm. those uh, those foils are giving me something to think about. Yep. So. I, I hope everybody listening um, has enjoyed this podcast. I certainly did, and and can put some of this information to good use. Jasmine, before we go, how about you let the listeners know how they can keep up with you and your work? You can go to my website at jasminestiefel.com, J-A-S-M-I-N-E-S-T-I-E-F-E-L. Well, there you have it. And don't forget, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can check out my website, www.kyledowning.com Shakespeare, or hit me up on social media via Twitter, at NYShakesGuy, Instagram, at NYShakesGuy, or Facebook, NYShakesGuy. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel, which you can find by going to my website and clicking the blue subscribe button at the top of the page. I'm Kyle Downing. For Jasmine Stiefel, thanks for listening, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.